This episode is brought to you by Synapse. Synapse is an app that streamlines workflows for film and TV crews, cast members, and studio employees. What they're building is truly game changer, and I'll be doing a deep dive with them in the upcoming weeks. But for now, follow them at Synapse for more. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Angle on Producers, the show where we shine a light on producers from all corners of the entertainment industry to understand who they are, what they do, and how they do what they do. As always, I am your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, I am so grateful you're tuning in for this very last episode of 2022. If you don't already, please take a minute to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you're not already subscribed to my newsletter, yes, I have a newsletter. I'm trying to make it more frequent. Please pop over to angleonproducers.com and sign up. Every two weeks, you'll receive tips, resources, inspiration, and words of wisdom to help you stay the course. And alas, I can't believe this is the final episode of the year and, and just how fast the year has flown by. In fact, I don't know if anyone else feels this, but... Doesn't it feel like we blinked and it was like, oh, a pandemic happened somehow. It just feels very much like 2022. The year has been back in full swing, which we're very grateful for. But somehow it feels more intense than ever before. (laughs) Maybe it's just me. But I am very much looking forward to a time off. As you guys know, I'm planning my wedding. I'm now in house. It's been a year of tons of transition. A lot of good stuff, but a lot of stuff. So... As we all wind down and cozy up into the season of rest and reflection, I hope you truly take the time to celebrate your wins, to learn from your blind spots, and to continue to do your best daily. Because I hear that's what life is all about. So I'm so excited to share this week's episode with Eva Price. Eva is a three-time Tony Award-winning producer with over 18 successful Broadway plays, musicals, and concerts under her belt. Notably called Broadway's powerhouse entrepreneur, some of her award-winning shows include Oklahoma, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, Dear Evan Hansen, Peter and the Starcatcher, Colin Quinn, Long Story Short, which was directed by Jerry Seinfeld, and many, many more. Eva grew up in Boston and earned a degree in political communications at George Washington University. After five years as an assignment editor at ABC News, Eva quit her prestigious and lucrative job and decided to pursue her dream of becoming a Broadway producer. She is a prime example of betting on yourself. A decade later, her dream has come true as she's now produced multiple Tony, Olivier, and Grammy award-winning shows on Broadway. Currently, Eva is producing the upcoming Broadway show and Juliet, which opens on November 17th. And she's also preparing for a new, important, very exciting musical that will open in L.A. in May of 2023 called Transparent. I absolutely adored my chat with her. She came highly recommended by Barbara Whitman, who we just heard from a few episodes ago. I had happened to go see Jagged Little Pill and saw her name. And Barbara knew her, of course, because the theater world is very small. And I'm so grateful we got to hear from her and capture a little bit of her wisdom. A few takeaways from this episode include how producers navigate the exhausting but fulfilling world of theater, the importance of humility despite being a successful producer, and how producers are change makers that often empower communities through their art. So without further ado, here's Eva. 
all good. Um, yeah, this show is really meant to be conversational, which from everything I've listened, you've had a podcast. Like it's just us having a conversation producer to producer. I started this because I wanted to create a pathway for others to understand what producers do across the landscape of entertainment. Because coming up, I felt that frustration myself and still feel this like it's so nebulous and there's so many different kinds. And so I'm on this journey to like document our stories, particularly of women and people of color, women of color in the business. So we have these time capsules for others to listen to and make it feel real, not like the panel version of ourselves, but like the women behind the titles, you know, of what it takes to do this work and the and really the important thing that I always like to focus on is the realities of the lifestyle and the sustainability that you need to have within yourself to reach your dreams because it's all possible, but no one talks about not in a microphone way, at least now maybe they do. But when I was doing this, like no one was really talking about how hard this actually is and how much of your life is poured into it and your soul and how crushing everything can be when it doesn't really manifest. And so I just wanted a place for community for others to know that all the people you admire to have felt this, still feel this, still have the struggles that we all have. And so hence this was born. And so that is it. And, you know, I had the good privilege of seeing A Strange Loop on Broadway um, in August when I was in New York and loved meeting Barbara and was like, who else should I talk to? And then she was like, mentioned you. And I had literally just come from like the day before seeing this here in LA. And I was like, yes, like, cause I was looking through the program of like, who should I talk to from this show? And I was like, yeah, Eva Price seems interesting. And then literally she's like, you should talk to Eva. I'm like, okay, we're going to talk to her. This meant to be. <laughs> I love that. Well, I love Barbara and I'm so proud of her and happy for all her success. So, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, it, it's an amorphous life, what we live and how we lead it. And I think the more we can share about exactly that, the ups, the downs, the hows, the whys. Exactly. And that's what we're here to do. And so thank you for taking the time to be here and share a little bit of what, a little bit when you've already shared so much, you've already given so much away. You have a podcast, you've been on numerous interviews and you've really been sort of a bastion, I feel, for like female indie producers on Broadway on how, how to navigate that space. And so thank you for doing that work. But you know, I'd love to just take it to the beginning for the listeners here and just how you found yourself in the arts and theater. I know that was your first love and just, yeah, like the whole journey to get us to where you are today. Oh, yeah. I think if there was a podcast where I could hear someone talk about what it means to be a producer, I would have found my journey happening a lot faster. But I grew up in a suburb of Boston. I went to shows. I starred in shows in high school. Starred being a loose term. I appeared in shows. <laughs> the best singer and dancer. So though I loved musicals, I, I was often third woman to the left and not mom. Yep. But I had a deep love for it. But I went to college for journalism and I studied TV news and radio and politics and worked in campaigns and worked in network news and interned in the news and radio business, thinking there was never going to be a place for me in the theater business because I was not going to be a star. And living in New York and going to theater and meeting other actors and singers and directors and producers, I started to see it within reach because I started to understand. Mm. And I was probably five years into my quite successful, actually, TV news career, making very good money and elevated in my place at, at ABC and feeling like there was a lot of possibility, but I was apathetic about the work and 
I lacked some creativity and inspiration. I remember we were folding laundry. So I was having an afternoon with a friend living in Brooklyn who was doing some producing and acting and writing. And I said, you know, when I'm 60 and a millionaire, I'll be a theater producer then. And she just turned to me and said, or you could do that now. You could just do it and do it now. No one had ever said that to me. So I was really taken aback by what that meant and took it apart and started getting involved in shows from friends, friends of friends, met investors from friends and friends of friends, met writers and got to understand how to option properties and develop work from coffee dates, lots and lots of coffee dates. And one thing led to another and I formed my company and I started producing. And 15 years later, I'm talking to you. Here you are. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. What I love about this is that this seed was planted or awakened in you by another woman, which is also really amazing part of the story. Just someone believing in you and just posing such a simple question, right? That opened the floodgates to this insane pivot that you made for, by a lot of people's standards, insane, not by your standards, to get you where you are today. And I think it's so important because now, 15 years later, people see the highlight reel of Eva Price and it's like so impressive, right? But the journey to get there is what I'm personally like obsessed with. Like I like really am like sick for the journey because that's where all the meat of it all is. And so talk to me about when you made that decision to leave a very successful career into this world, the guess you got some like, you know, you were following all the crumbs that you were getting, but what was that time like for you emotionally? Like, what were you feeling? Were you just enthusiastic or was it just a full gamut of emotions? How did you navigate that in yourself to keep going? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. I I think I credit two things. One, I am an ace compartmentalizer. Whenever I felt scared or anxious or insecure or fearful or upset, I would compartmentalize those feelings and pivot and go about my day or my next step or my next meeting or my next journey. And I think that allowed me to overcome the barriers and work through the obstacles and and feel better about the challenges because I would park those emotions and turn left and keep going. I think the other thing that helped me a lot in that time was the fact that I had actually just come out of the closet and I had been one of those, I mean, and nowadays in 2022, you know, it's sort of like, what's the big deal? Right, right. 15-year-olds are coming out of the closet. Yeah, which I'm so happy that's where we are, right, today. But like, definitely was different times, yeah. Yeah, but 20 years ago, you know, I was not ready and open. I was very scared. And so I had come out and by all stretches of, of measurement, it went great, right? Like, my parents didn't disown me. No one dropped dead. I fell into great relationships. So, and I had felt at that point in my life that that was the scariest, most daring, hardest thing I would ever do. So kind of every other choice was going to pale in comparison. So because I had done that, overcome it and quote unquote succeeded at coming out, I, you know, and dropped dead and I wasn't disowned and I didn't lose everything. Uh, In fact, life got so substantially better and brighter I was able to sort of take this other risk and make this other proclamation about myself and 
who I wanted to be in the world and how I wanted to live my life. And that was to go into theater and become a Broadway producer in equally scary declaration. I think that helped that emotional journey that you're pointing out and asking about because I was, was emotionally prepared for whatever was coming next. Did you have a definition or perception in your mind at that time of what a Broadway producer was or did? And if so, I'm curious what that was and how now that you've been in it for so long, how that's evolved, if at all. You know, I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, that that's why I said I'll be a Broadway producer when I'm 60 and a millionaire, because my perception of a Broadway producer was an old man on a couch with a cigar hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> just piles of cash <laughs> to support theater. Yeah. Piles of scripts and piles of cash and a man. Of course. Yeah. I had such a obviously small view as to what it meant to be a Broadway producer. And I was the opposite of all of that. I wasn't rich. I wasn't a man. I didn't have a cigar hanging out my mouth. Two of those things you can change. <laughs> <laughs> I do like a cigar now and then. I feel like the fact that I felt I was likely the opposite of what a Broadway producer was also somehow gave me agency to forge my own way of being a Broadway producer and creating my own self in the vein of a Broadway producer because I had one very small-minded view of what one was and I was the farthest thing from him. And so then once you have that clarity that like that's where you wanted to be, I know you, you kind of had, like you said, some initial friends that connected you. What was that first project that made you feel like, oh, I, I've arrived. Like I'm a producer. This is my first baby that I'm putting out there. Here I am, Broadway. Like, what was that? If I say I haven't felt that yet. I knew you were going to say that. So I, I believe you, but it's not a valid response. Sorry. Because every woman does this and they don't want to acknowledge. Like, can I just read this right now? Okay. A three-time Tony Award-winning producer, Garnered four Olivier Awards, two Grammy Awards, 19 Tony Awards. Like what? Those are the shows, not me personally, the shows. Still, they happen because of you to some extent. They don't, nothing happens. The creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I, and I share that because yes, every producer has this response where they don't feel like they've arrived, which is great. I think it's part of what keeps us one humble generally, and too hungry, right? To continue to do the work because we're here because we love the work and we love supporting creatives. But I am here to hold a mirror to my fellow producers and remind us to zoom out and look at, take a minute to slow down what we have accomplished and what, where we have arrived. And so celebrating the small wins, even if they're just for you, is something I harp on a lot on this show because this journey is so freaking difficult. So in that vein and in that spirit, I'm curious if like, maybe it's a rephrase of the question, but like, you know, when you first felt like, okay, I've, I've, I've arrived, I figured this out, like I've, whatever mystery box of producing exists, I've kind of, I'm on my way. Yeah. I feel like it's been um, a constant pivot and arrival and journey to that figuring out. I think every time I have felt that way, I can see marks in my career of when I felt that way. I felt that way to some degree when I lead produced my first Broadway show, which was uh, Colin Quinn, Long Story Short, directed by Jerry Seinfeld. Oh my God. I had a play directed by Jerry Seinfeld starring Colin Quinn. And I brought it to Broadway and we got a good New York Times review and it sold tickets. Like, so I guess there was like a moment of that in 2010. I probably felt that again in 2012 when I finally produced a play 
that had more than one person in it. That was Peter and the Starcatcher, which won five Tony Awards. And so I thought like, oh, I have good taste and I know what I'm doing and people respect me and how I lead. So that was probably some two pivotal moments until probably I won my first Tony Award as a lead producer, which was in 2019 with Oklahoma. I also probably hadn't felt I quite arrived because this is an industry that defines success from two things, really. One is recoupment, which is a really, really important measure of success, i.e. you've paid your money back and your investors are whole. Doesn't mean they're in profit yet, but they are whole, which tells you a lot about theater when that's a definition of success, just even. But, and the other kind of measure of success in our business is awards. And so winning the Tony Award and making the speech and being up there with all my, my fellow producers in front of my industry on television with my family in the audience, that, that was an amazing feeling. That was incredible. So I guess those are some pivotal moments, but kind of whenever I'm at an opening night and I feel really good about the show and I feel really good about where the show is at and where I'm at. And I have kind of that joy, that like quiet joy before the work sets in and the reviews come in and the difficulties emerge again. I think those are pretty great feelings of being proud of myself and knowing I'm in the right place. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, your career has been so successful so far and you're, I feel like, still just getting started. You know, there's so much I'm sure you still want to do and will do, but yet you are still considered, already considered a Broadway powerhouse. These are words that have been said about you out there in the internets. And when you hear that, how does that resonate for you? And what does that give you a sense of like ammo to like step into the words powerhouse even more for however you define that for yourself. Wow. I've really skipped past those words. I got to be honest. I think they're very complimentary and very kind. And obviously there's truth to them. I've, I've had success. I've been a leader in the industry. I've, I've led shows and absolutely helped change the art form. There is no humility in this next sentence. This is simply truth. Like I don't actually hear those words and take them in, in any way other than someone was either generous or wanting their story posted or or feels that way about lots of people who can succeed in theater because it's so freaking hard. So, it, you know, if you can make a show happen, you're a powerhouse. Yeah, because it's really hard. But I think to me, wh- how I take this away and just, you know, making a lot of projections onto you and your career, <laughs> from my perspective, it's not just about the shows and the success of the shows. It seems like the work that you've also done and how you're here to empower underrepresented voices, how you're holding up a mirror to the industry from a diversity perspective and going, is this who we want to be? Is this what Broadway looks like in 2022? Like, that is not something you need to take on, on top of producing in a very difficult industry, right? Um, None of us do as women, but we have to because no one else is going to do it for us. So to me, when I hear those words, it transcends the actual title of a producer. It's more of like you're supercharged as a human and that is like your house full of power and you're here to like send out all that power, like almost like on a grid to all the different tentacles that need it. So it, you know, you're infusing all of that beyond just in the work itself. And that's how I perceive it. And so in that sense, I think, you know, you have done so much. And while Broadway has such a long way to go, if the outsiders are not coming into the system and saying, hey, guys, like, cool that this has been like this for like 100 years or like since forever, fine. But there's other ways. There's other ways, right? It's a slow roll into that. So 
So that's, that's what I hear from it. And so to me, it's like, you know, I do commend you on the work you've done in that space. And would just love to hear more on on that note of like, yes, Broadway, Hollywood, the world, we have a long way to go as far as really reaching some of these goals of gender parity, really looking on underrepresented voices. But you're out there leading the charge in this conversation, it seems frequently. So how has that been going? How does it feel like things have evolved slow as they are (laughs) from your perception? I was reading something recently about I think it was two TV producers, I'm trying to remember now, probably The New Yorker, because I really only commit to one magazine, (laughs) that talked about how in 2016, the election of Donald Trump happened and everything kind of changed for them in terms of what they wanted to spend their time producing, working on, developing, and it really resonated. I hadn't actually put it together like that, but there was an awakening for me. After that, you know, I looked around at myself, at the work that meant something to me and what inspired me at what I wanted to keep doing. I I was producing a show on election night, 2016. We were in a dress rehearsal actually for a show I had in Philadelphia. I couldn't have been canvassing, you know, I couldn't have been outside whole watching. All I knew how to do that night was vote in the morning. (laughs) I came back to New York, I voted and go back to my show to produce. And then we know what happened next. And I thought, okay, I still only know how to keep producing. That's what I do. But if I can produce work that can change this country into seeing the light, into being better, into fighting for the things that are important to me, if I can do them both at the same time, I want to do that. And I think I thought about it and then I forgot about it. And I kept doing my work and I kept doing my work. And then I read this article just a couple of weeks ago and I thought, oh, I'm going to look back on the six years of work I've produced and developed. And it is in a way, my way of activism, my way of fighting for social justice, my way of creating a better America. And so I think I've had the bandwidth and the motivation to do the type of work, fight the good fight, all these nice words you're using to describe it because I haven't known how else to do my job. I couldn't just do my job as a theater producer without doing my job as an American. And they started going hand in hand in a way that people actually cared about and supported. People, suddenly it was cool in the last couple of years (laughs) to produce theater that actually spoke to marginalized communities (laughs) and talked about social justice, change conversation. I was like, "Ah, uh, can I raise my hand? I've been doing this (laughs) for a few years. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad we're all doing it now and talking about it. And it's in vogue, but it's just kind of, it's been happenstance. It's been just in the fabric of me because of the type of American I am. Yeah. I think that the the responsibility I think we have as storytellers to make sure that we're bringing stories that impact identity, you know, and really can show others just perception and stereotypes come from somewhere. And and as a Latina, like this is something that is a huge issue uh, all across all industries because Latinos still are massively underrepresented, even though it's one of the largest populations in the in the in the country, which is wild. But it's something I think about a lot, you know, how where do these ideas that a woman who looks a certain way and only speaks Spanish is probably a maid or a gardener, where did these ideas come from? And 
And it's the stories we tell. I mean, we were just talking about this, the top with, you know, this image of a a single solo man who exudes success. Like these are stories that we've been hearing time and time again. I was just at an event last night that it's a really cool event that does partnerships um, between U.S. and U.K. writers to help artists understand how to work in different in different fields. And, and one of the things that they said in this panel is that this idea we've been sold on this narrative of like, and Americans are obsessed with this, right? The solo man that goes on a journey and goes on this journey by himself and figures it out by himself. And he's always alone and it's always a man. And we've been sold this so many times that like Forrest Gump is one of my favorite movies. It's the same story. So we have this imprinted in us so deeply, even those of us that are woke and aware to try to make this change, it is so hard to combat generations of conditioning of these images. And so this is, I think, stepping stones to introduce more of this because it's like what, doesn't it marketing say? It's like you need seven impressions for something to actually even pay attention to it. So if we're only at step two, we we still got a long way to go, but like we're getting there, right? We're getting started so that we're not looking back a hundred years from now and going, wait, where did we mess up? Like we should have started in 2010. And yeah, you know what I mean? So all that to say, I, I'm curious, you know, what, what would you say is one of the biggest misconceptions you think people have of what it means to be a producer and maybe specifically in Broadway and theater? I think one misconception is that we have all the money. <laughs> and that producers are rich and the, and there's all the money. I remember there I had one show, I'm not going to say which one, in which we got an, an email or we heard through a company manager that the performer in the show was calculating how much money we make because the theater sat 2000 people. So therefore every day that they played the 2000 seat theater we were walking away with 2000 times whatever. And I was like, wow, that's how they think this works. They don't think <laughs> there's any overhead or costs or anything. They just think you pocket all that money. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. And this was a tour. So, you know, the financial model of the touring industry isn't often based, can be, but isn't often based on the ticket sales of a building. It's based on the company share and the guarantee you get for showing up, less all your expenses, less the building's expenses, less every, you know, and I was like, wow, they have no idea how this works. If they think that every night that we're playing that 2000 seater, I'm walking away, like what, what's that evil guy from Inspector Gadget, right? Like sitting there (laughs) petting my cat with my millions of dollars. Yeah. With a cigar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I also remember, you know, just speaking of the misconceptions about money, when I, when I left the news business and I went into being a theater producer and I was getting advice and I was talking to lots of people, someone actually said to me, kid, you can make a killing, but you can't make a living being a theater producer. And I will say to this day, and I don't know if this is good, bad, or indifferent, but I have absolutely not figured out how to make a killing, but I've absolutely figured out how to make a living. So I'm either doing something very wrong <laughs> or very right. I feel like that's just circumstance and then lightning in a bottle of it all. You know, you just keep doing the work and then you hit the one thing that hits the jackpot, becomes Hamilton or whatever, you know, becomes that outlier. I think there's a similar parallel to that in our world, right? Where everybody wants to be that independent film that breaks out at Sundance and goes on to become the next thing that Marvel picks up. And like, there, these things happen, absolutely but they're outliers, like apps. It's the same thing. And so 
it's not to say it's not possible. You, you work towards those goals and you put in put in the work, but so much of it, I do feel exists outside of your control. It's like predicting audience taste and predicting all these things that are completely speculative. Of course, there's data to back it up, but it's just, how do you predict human taste over the course of time? Like, so hard to do. But I am curious, like, is there a parameter that you can share with us on like, when you compare a, a more independent show to a, one of these more commercial shows like Lion King or, you know, is Wicked, um, you know, Hamilton, these shows that we know are financially very successful. And then these other shows that from what my conversation with Barbara really explains that it's more almost like the independent side of Broadway and how you're patchworking these shows. Is there a range of like, I know success is breaking even, but success for a producer who is like walking away with a profit, like what does that look like? Oh man, I mean, it, it's the gamut. It's the total range. You know, a show can, I don't want to speculate on anything relating to Wicked or Lion King because I'm not the producers on those shows and I, I don't know anything about their finances or anything about anything other than what's public knowledge. But, you know, one is a studio, Disney, right? And, and one is a group of independent producers in, in combination with Universal. But one was a, an already successful movie and a, and a brand from Disney and one was a successful book, but who knew where it was going to go? So I think both are really good examples of, of how you could find success with just like you're saying, the cultural zeitgeist, making the work great, timing and all of those things. The range can be anything. I mean, it can be a year on Broadway that turns a profit and that's it, you know, to something that can run for decades and tour the world and have licensed productions for 40 years and can keep spilling money back to the original mother company, which is the original investing entity that produced the show. Um, you know, success in theater takes so many shapes and sizes, as we talked about before, and therefore the range of profitability takes so many shapes and sizes from 110% of recoupment on the investment to a thousand percent plus. There is no, and it's so funny, often when I'm raising money, especially from a newer investor or someone who's new to theater, they ask, rightfully so, what's the possible return? And it's like, wow, well, let me get the crystal ball <laughs> and tell you, you know, you can make assumptions, you can make a bunch of guesswork. Well, this is a brand. This is Neil Diamond music. This is Elton John music. This is Carol King music. There's some formulas and history there that you could certainly make a guess and say the last like-minded show like this returned X percent. But you also never know because for every Carol King musical, there's the Beach Boys musical, right? For every big, for every Jersey Boys, there's, you know, the, the non-Jersey boy. I can't even think of it right now, but the, but plenty, the Elvis, it's just, um, which is why you can't, I truly believe, and I say this all the time and I do this all the time. You can't ever produce something. You can't choose to produce something because your thinking going into it is this is going to be a hit. I have to do this. It's going to be a hit. It has all the formula correct. It has the the alchemy correct. And this is my hit because 99 times out of 100, if not 100 times out of 100, that attitude and that reason for producing means you fail. But if you go into something because you love it, and for me specifically, I always ask myself this, I can't not produce it. I literally can't not produce it. If those are the two feelings going into it, and sometimes can't not comes from, well, because it is going to work and it is going to be successful. And I do believe in its commercial viability, sure. But 
mostly because I'm just so driven to be its producer because I either am so in love or I know I'm the right person for it. Those are the things that drive me to then make the choice. And like you said, you know, life is long and there's a lot of opportunity. And sometimes the, the alchemy of timing and audience's taste work in your favor. Yeah. And sometimes they don't. <laughs> it's true. It's, I mean, I always think about how many things like to your point are packaged in a way that people think will hit because of the stats and the, if you do it on Labor Day weekend and all these elements, like it should work and how many of those things don't work. And especially in Hollywood, right? And like people sweep it under the rug real quick. And then it's just always focus on the things that are working. And those are the metrics. It just really blows my mind. But on, on the topic of sustainability, you know, I wonder like, For independent filmmakers, I know what this looks like, but I'm curious if someone is like at the beginning stages of their career wanting to produce Broadway, are there opportunities that, you know, in the work itself, is it enough to financially sustain them when they're starting? Or are people also generally having to like work side hustles in the beginning to kind of establish themselves more? Like at what point do you find like a crossover where you're like, okay, I can actually now make a a good living doing this um, that is sustainable, that doesn't have to always be be contingent upon the success of a show? When I started out and still to this day, I knew that a business where the real money comes from net profit, and yes, some money comes from weekly office fees and royalties, but the real big money was net profit as a producer. That wasn't going to pay the bills the hope and the dream of net profit. And because I was a very hands-on producer when I started out, mostly because I didn't know how not to be, (laughs) I realized that there were other revenue streams in the business in running a show, and that's general management. And sometimes that's also booking your own show and, and taking a commission from that. Sometimes that's consulting or exec producing other people's shows and taking revenue from that. And that was really important to me that there was constantly revenue being generated from a show, not just the hope and dream of net profit. So that's certainly how I created a model, an income model and a producing model. Someone else once said this line to me, producing can be defined as success if you start with $2 million and you end with $1 million. (laughs) And I thought, oh my God, if that is how we're defining success, this is this is going to be a short career. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild, right? Yeah. To try to explain it to any outsiders, they're like, and I'm sorry, this is viable. How? And you do this because why? You love it. Got it, got it, got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, that's sort of how I generated revenue, at least initially, was just sort of taking on lots of elements of producing the shows and and generating the revenue from delivering all of those line item services in a show's budget. And a lot of people do that and will do that. And at the same time, a lot of people absolutely need a side hustle and absolutely derive income from a whole other career or model. I know a lot of theater producers and when they originally became theater producers came out of the real estate business, which has a lot of similarities. I always recommended that that is a good path for folks. And then sometimes you have a lot of producers who have other disciplines in the industry. They're singers, they're actors, they're voiceover artists, they're writers, they're teachers. I know a handful of folks that, you know, sort of survive being a theater producer by having a tangential other life in the industry. So I think I think it runs the gamut. It's whatever drives you to be able to do the work of a theater producer 
while enjoying your life. Yeah, which is so important. And on that note of enjoying one's life, um, you know, I think this idea that I wanted to talk to you about just betting on yourself, right? Like so many careers of the women I've spoken to on the show, it's like taking a machete and and carving out here. You're like making your own pathway, which is often what makes it so difficult to explain to people like how anyone can do this because it's so unique to that person's journey. But it requires a huge amount of betting on yourself before anyone's really willing to bet on you. And and a sense of confidence that I don't know where it comes from from a lot of us because, you know, certainly a lot of the women I talk to wouldn't say that they feel confident or, you know, they still have imposter syndrome, like all of these things that we all still deal with. But there is some amount of like resilience, right? And just really when you get past some of those insecurities and fear, like what you were saying, you compartmentalize and you still go left or right and you just push through, you plow through to get where you're going. So just wanted to hear a little bit more from you on this idea, yeah, of betting on yourself because you've done this so well from an external perspective, of course, and what guidance you can give to listeners on how they can maybe find that within themselves. I think the only way you win the jackpot is you walk up to the table. That's perfect. I believe betting on yourself by just showing up, by walking to the table, taking your hand on that dice and tossing. And that's how you do anything in life, really. It's one foot in front of the other. It's showing up. It's actually showing up. And I remember, I'll I'll just say a very short story. When I was first getting into this industry, I went to a CTI seminar. Have you heard about the Commercial Theater Institute over here? So so I I think it might be on hiatus now, post-pandemic. But for years, there was something called the Commercial Theater Institute in New York, where emerging and beginning producers could get together to take classes, to have networking events. It was sponsored by the Broadway League. It brought in some of the best and the brightest of the industry to walk through a budget and teach about negotiating a deal. And And they used to do big sort of seminars, like a three-day weekend that was open to anyone to sign up and attend. And that was one of my entrees into theater producing was I, I was still in news business, but I, I paid the entrance fee and I showed up for one of the three-day weekends And there was some flyers on a table where former CTI students had listed a flyer saying, if you're interested in the show that we're developing, please call. And the show sounded incredible. Like it sounded fun and cool and wonderful. And I was in this very early stage of just investigating everything and figuring out what I want to get involved in. And so I called and I met them and I got involved. And it wasn't a big success and it didn't change the world, but I ended up getting involved in a later iteration of that same show, which did lead me to other things. And I remember asking at one point to the, when I met the two people who had left that flyer, how did you choose me? You know, how did I get to join? And they're like, you're the only one that called. (laughs) (laughs) It's wild. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, you showed up. You got the opportunity to do it because you actually showed up. Yeah. And I was like, I guess showing up is one of people's biggest challenges where for me, that was never it. It was never about showing up. It was about all the pain that happened after that. Showing up, following through. And I always like to say when you're starting out, it's like leaning into what is already in front of you. Like this is an opportunity that presented itself and you just leaned in. You don't know where it could take you, but the story could have been different. 10 years later, this could have been the thing that changed your career. You don't know, right? You could only connect those dots looking backwards, but it's always easier to look at what's 
three, four steps ahead of where you want to be right now versus looking literally to your right and left of what's actually in front of you and making the best of that. And I always say it's like it's a fine dance of like, you know, especially when you're starting out, getting the crumbs that you can get and kind of learning from that and then having moments where you can pan out and go, okay, this is all awesome. It's been great like, you know, copy for life, but is this where I want to be going too? Because oftentimes I always warn people or caution them is a better word that if you're not careful, especially in Hollywood, I don't know if Broadway is the same in theater, but like you can get stuck in different parts of the business because you're really good at doing one thing that maybe isn't the thing you actually wanted to be doing because those were the doors that initially opened. And then you blink and a decade has passed and you go, holy shit, how am I doing like horror when I really wanted to be doing comedy? You know what I mean? Like this happens to a lot of people. And I think it's where that that stereotype of really bitter, cynical, jaded people within the industry kind of where that comes from because they just, the life takes them by storm and they don't get to actually take inventory and responsibility for their own career and how they're going to show up. And that's hard to do, certainly, depending on life circumstances and all the other real, real things that happened. But I talk about this a lot. So I'm so grateful that you're sharing a very similar message from a completely different perspective, because I think it's super important, especially for people that are starting out. It's just, I'm always asked, how do I become a producer? How do I produce? Like, I want to produce with you and I want to, I'm like, just go do and look, literally look around you and find opportunities show up. Like you'll be surprised at how much there is because people with this curiosity and skill set, I do think we are like weird unicorn humans. Um, and there's a bunch of us all around. I feel like through this podcast, I'm like collecting my tribe, you know, finding all of us weirdos that are out there doing this work. But it's not for everybody, you know, it takes a lot of resilience and dedication, and you have to be gosh, like malleable. You, there's so many skill sets you have to have. So I think we're like a very special breed of humans personally. And so it's important to nurture these humans that we are, which brings me to my next question, which is self-care. You know, um, the work is hard. It's emotionally draining. I would assume it's the same for you as it is for me, where oftentimes the producer's are checking in on everybody else because that's our job and no one's really checking in with us. No one's seeing what we need and no one's making sure that we're our wells are filled so we can show up suited and ready to give so much away. So I'm curious, how do you fill your own well when you're feeling low? How have you found that balance? I don't want to call it work-life balance because we know that's like not real. That's just a marketing thing. It doesn't exist. But like balance for yourself, you know, whatever that looks like. How do you unplug and just hunker down to the real, real of like being a human and not being a producer? Yeah. When I, and notice I said when, I unplug, I really unplug. And when I commit to connecting and connecting to something other than work and disengaging from the work, I really engage with that non-work and I really disengage from the work. I just make a firm commitment when I need to do self-care and when I need to do something for myself because the well is dry and I got no fucks left to give. (laughs) I am just aware of it and I listen to it and I honor it, and I recognize it and act on it. And I, I, I say when, because I don't do it enough. I don't unplug enough. I don't self-care enough, like all of us. But the way, you know, to answer your question of, of how I do it is when I do do it, I really do it. And, and I have a great support system. I have an amazing partner, you know, in life. And I have, an, I have incredible friends who are like 
sisters to me, you know, like a, a group of, uh, you know, where you can send a WhatsApp message any time of day and know you'll get a response. And I have terrific colleagues on shows. I have a great team who help me run the shows and run the office. And, and I have great family. I'm very lucky. My parents are, are both still alive and I have siblings and nieces and I do rely on that connection and that connection fills me and helps me get through whatever's next ahead. Yeah. So for you, it's just spending time, quality time with these humans in your life, with your incredible community. It's not like you're needing a spa day or needing to travel somewhere. I'm sure that's also welcomed, but you know. Yeah, I don't mind a spa day, nor do I mind the beach. And so I will take that. It's about unplugging from the work and focusing and connecting to something meaningful, be it humans in my life, be it a place of comfort and joy. Yeah. And would you say that when you have weathered the undulations of this business and the ups and downs, you know, the highs are really high and the lows are low, you know, and that's something that I always think is important to highlight. But when you've been in these, the lows and the lulls of your career, how do you weather those storms, right? Like, how do you get through those periods of time and get out the other side, energized to keep going? Especially because I think we, I talk a lot about this uh, with, with in the film world specifically, but this idea of grief that we experience over projects and relationships that are lost because it requires such an investment of self. Like to your point, if you don't love it, like don't do it. But then if you love it, that means you really love it and you really care about it. So it is like a breakup every time, <laughs> you know, it's like a heartbreak. And just dealing with with that within ourselves, it's it can be really challenging. So yeah, I'm curious how in the past you've weathered those storms and how you show up ready to keep going. Grief is such a good word to describe the feeling when a show closes, fails. Absolutely. It feels like a death, a hundred percent. I think the way I have survived and weathered it is kind of in that same way that I answered your other question about comfort and self-care. I haven't ignored the pain or the emotion, right? I feel it. I feel my feelings. <laughs> I don't feel them often enough, but when I do, I feel them. So I wallow, I sit, I feel the grief and the pain. I cry, I throw things, <laughs> I shut down, whatever it is that one has to go through to live out the grief and the pain. So I go there and I do it and it's dark and it's dark for a couple of days, a couple of hours, a couple of weeks, whatever it might be. And then I find the joy. And then I just do. I find that through friends. I find that through community. I find that through some other distraction, a book, a TV show, a movie, a party, a roller coaster. I actually hate roller coasters, but <laughs> <laughs> the equivalent of a roller coaster, you have some thrill, you know, from something else, a sport, you know, a game, uh, whatever it is. I just do that. I do that and I find that. And I really, I really rely on my sources of comfort to be there for me and to, to bring me forward. That's awesome. I mean, and, and then, you know, on that note, as we get close to wrapping up and I do have a lightning round, I like to close with, but I have two final questions for you before the lightning round. So it's, I would want to know specifically with this time that we're living in heading into 2023, looking at the current state of all the things, you know, what advice do you have for someone who is aspiring specifically in the theater space to keep putting that foot in front of the other? and continuing to show up. Believe in yourself. 
believe in your projects, believe in your taste, believe in the possibility of success, which is something that I know a lot of people have a really hard time wrapping their head around, but everyone deserves it and it is possible. So believe in it. That's one piece of advice. I think the other piece of advice is don't take no and don't take no shit. If you want to make something happen and someone keeps saying, no, you can't have those rights. You know, they don't return the call. You aren't good enough. You aren't experienced enough. You're not rich enough. Don't take the no for an answer. Keep working at it. Prove, prove them wrong. And then when people try and give you shit, don't take no shit. Every kind of mean, ornery, angry, threatening person is just a scared child. If you cannot be scared, then you win. I love that. And that is so true in life, in life, but especially in this creative field of ours. Especially in show business. Absolutely. Especially in show business. Yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of grown children running around, <laughs> figuring shit out, <laughs> you know, exactly. just playing for a living, taking it way too seriously. Before we get to the, the lightning round, I'm curious if, if there's a legacy to leave behind through your work. You know, what is that legacy that you hope to leave behind? What is something that you hope the, you know, in leaving the industry better than you found it? What would you say though that is for you? I think I'd like the legacy to be that you can treat each other and treat people respectfully, kindly, and you can have fun and not take yourself too seriously while still being a boss. <laughs> a powerhouse. Yeah. Our house, perhaps. Oh, it's so circle with you. <laughs> I find so often people feel they need to rule with fear and with tension and with such utter seriousness to get the best results. And perhaps in some ways you do. And there are some examples of that absolutely working. But my God, if we can't have fun and laugh and laugh at ourselves and make people feel good and just enjoy it and be vulnerable and friendly while doing it, like, wouldn't you rather that and still have success? It's so much better. Why would you not want that version of your life? Like, what? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question exactly. Maybe you meant like an artistic legacy, but I think it's just a way of bleeding. I want to leave that legacy. Yeah. No, there's no, it's what, however the question lands for you, I have no agenda with it. So if that's how you took it, then that's fantastic. And that is, I think, a really worthwhile legacy that you're on your way to leaving behind. So we'll see what the Wikipedia page says in 50 years, but <laughs> you heard it here first <laughs> on Angle of Producers. There'll still be Wikipedia in 50 years. That's the real thing. It'll be like some virtual reality, like metaverse you step into or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be wild. <laughs> Whatever's up ahead, man. It's crazy. <laughs> well, before we move on to the lightning round, I just want to thank you for taking the time. This is so fun just to get a little bit about you. This is not meant to be an all-encompassing career deep dive, though. I do hope one day to have like an inside the actor studio, but for producers where we get to have these really deep dive into people's careers because I'm personally fascinated by it. But but no, the intention is really just to leave a little nugget behind for those that are are here and interested and need that boost of inspiration, of motivation. And yeah, just the reality of what we do. So thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. 
So with that said, let's move to the lightning round. These are fun five questions just to take us out of the interview. So the first question is, what is a song that teleports you to a happy place? Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen. Love it. Yes. What is the latest piece of art that moved you? It can be a book, a film, a show, et cetera. For whatever reason, and I don't listen to it often, but there is a song from, please don't laugh at me, La La Land. <laughs> City of Stars? No. The Audition. Mm. God. That song gets me every time. Yeah. What does it do for you? It's about her aunt, right? And I'm an aunt. That's what I have. That's what I have to give to the world is my shows and my nieces, right? That's what's left. So I think there's that personal connection. I think it's her vulnerability. I think because there's truisms and it's a beautiful song. Yeah, I love that. Okay, fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Sleep. When I'm overworked, sleep helps, helps ease the stress. Most people say wine. So you're very healthy. Well balanced, doing well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what is one of the most worthwhile investments that you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. I joined a gym in 2015, a small boutique gym that was a little too expensive for my taste, but motivated me and changed me and made me more healthy for the next like five years. And I'm so glad I did it. Nice. I love it. So important. You do a lot of self-care, by the way. You made it sound earlier like you were like, Meh, but like, this is all good stuff. As your doctor, I approve. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the final question. And I know I mentioned inside the actor studio earlier, this is borrowing from that show, which I loved watching growing up. And it is the final question that he ends the show with, which is the question is inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot. And it is the question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You did good. You're going to have fun here. Don't be mad that you got here when you did. I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm so honored to have had this time with you. I loved Jagged Little Pill, by the way. I didn't even want to like fangirl at the top because it would just take up the whole hour. I didn't know anything about the show going in. And I love, I just like how I like to go into shows completely blind. I sometimes don't even want to read the program until after because I just like take me on a ride. There's very little mystery anymore to anything, I guess in life. And so when I can just go in and be taken for a ride, I will. And I was not ready for the ride. I will say, I thought it was going to be a really fun, upbeat show, Alanis Morris. And then it was just like, it just hits you in the face in all the right ways that a show needs to hit. And so thank you for creating art that does that and taking art to create new art. Like, it's just so cool. Thank you for you. And obviously the whole team that brought it to life. I know it's not just you in a vacuum, but it's a hundred percent, not just me. It's such an, ex I mean, it, we're just so lucky. We just had an extraordinary creative team that we got together to make that show. And, you know, sometimes just the alchemy of great art, great artists, great energy, a great moment, great, great leadership, great cast. And in this case, great inspiration in Alanis and then the album allowed us to create what you saw. And I'm so so grateful for this touring company and the show continue to have the long life and so glad that people around the country are getting to see it because it changed my life. I think it has the power to change many, many lives. 
And I think it's one of the most important contemporary musicals of our day. Who, and it just didn't get its chance to run long enough on Broadway because of the freaking pandemic. So, you know, I'm just so glad that it it has this opportunity to tour the country. Well, I'm I'm excited to help support, spread the word and make sure people go see it. So, yeah, thank you so much. Is there anything that you've got coming up that you want to plug as we, we depart? Oh my God, I have so much coming up. I have um, this really incredible new musical um, that is all about joy and fun, but also about you know, the power of love and second chances and being your true self. It's called And Juliet and it opens on Broadway November 17th. Love. I love it so much. I, oh, it's coming up. It's in like a couple of weeks. And uh, it's been running in London for the last several years. And I was fortunate enough to join the team and be one of the producers to bring it to Broadway. So I'm really, really excited about that. I have this really joyful, fun, totally silly, totally kooky show running off Broadway called Titanic. It's a send up of the Titanic movie with all Beyond <laughs> songs. And that is just really, that's like pure escapism and joy and a love letter to both Titanic and Celine. And so I'm having a lot of fun with that. And I have this really beautiful, funny, joyous, meaningful, I think, again, an important new musical opening in Los Angeles in May called Transparent, based on the TV series. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I'm really, really excited for the world to see it because it is probably, I think, the next great American musical. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Are you guys using that as a jumping off point into a, like almost like the world within the world not retelling the show? 100%. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, the show starts up with Mora coming out. And you know what they say, when one member of the family transitions, everyone does too. Yeah, it's a great tagline. You're good at this producing thing. You should keep it up. I think you've got a future ahead of you. <laughs> well, thank you again. This is lovely. I could talk to you all day. But yeah, I'm so excited. 